Welcome to another episode of the Leadership Connection, where industry expert Doug Plucknett interviews global leaders from the maintenance and reliability industry. Each week, new leaders will join us with insights and tips to help you grow in your career, and they'll share a good story or two while they're at it as well. The Leadership Connection is produced by the industry's leading networking and learning community, Mobius Connect. Doug, over to you. Hello, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, good day, whatever time of day it might happen to be that you tune into this podcast. Uh, I am Doug Plucknett, and this is the Leadership Connection. And today, I am honored to have George Mahoney from Merck. Uh, George and I met several years ago, and we've chatted several times at different conferences. And uh, I know that, that George is uh, one of those names in reliability that I think everybody should know. Uh, he's got a lot, to, a lot of things to offer, and uh, is one of those people that's been recognized uh, year after year. Uh, at conferences, doing presentations and things like that. So I'm uh, honored to uh, to know George and, and to have done a little bit of work with him in the past. George, how are you doing today? Doug, I'm doing well. And a special thank you to you because you've been a gigantic help in my career in, in multiple different areas with reliability, with energy, sustainability. So a big thank you goes to you. So thanks a lot. Well, thank you for mentioning me. I appreciate that. Uh, so I'm trying to think about how long ago it was that we first met, but you've been around. You're, uh, you know, I consider you one of the younger guys in this business. But but now, uh, probably 15 years down the road, you look at yourself and say, "No, I, I don't think I'm one of the younger guys anymore." <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. So how you been? I'm doing really well. Uh, going, hitting on some new areas. I'm not exactly in the reliability and maintenance world anymore, but taking a lot of what I did in those fields and applying it to just completely and totally different areas of my life. All right. So what is your role now at Merck? So right now I've, just, I've been working with a, uh, a group within Merck with procurement. My I, Part of what we're doing is we're, we're implementing a, I, I basically to simplify it for everybody, it'd be like rolling out our own internal Amazon system, our own purchasing system that makes it simple. Now we're not using Amazon, we're using SAP, but we're trying to make it as simple as buying things as you would with your, your cell phone right now if you're buying anything off of Amazon. But oh, my actual role within that uh, is really to be the, the, manage the way they work. So how is this big giant project team, how are they working? How are we eliminating inefficiencies in the workflow process, but then if you think about it from a reliability and maintenance standpoint, how do we eliminate defects in the processes that we have? And now because this is a, a little bit of an integrated solution with respect to IT, we have people working health desks, so a part of my next phase of this goal will be how do we bring reliability and maintenance concepts to something that doesn't deal with equipment? How do we deal with someone calling a help desk and saying, I cannot make this transaction? Wow. This sounds like a really interesting project. So, I, and looking from the maintenance and reliability background, you know, to, to be able to do things like that handheld in, in terms of being able to get parts and, and the things you need for for jobs, and, and you, what you may be doing is something different from that, but I'm looking at it from that perspective saying, well, wouldn't that be nice, right, uh, to put that in the yeah. palm of people's hands, right? And Doug, you know, it, it's it's waste to wait. Uh, you know, obviously in, in the maintenance world, you don't want to create emergencies for your storeroom people or procurement people. You need to plan better and, and be more proactive. But even if you are proactive, it, it's still a waste to wait. So if you can cut down waiting time, then yeah. uh, everybody wins. Interesting. It was something that uh, Ron Moore and I talked about last week uh, on a podcast that we were doing, you know, about wrench time. Uh, one of those things is saying, you know, where do we where do we spend most of our time? And uh, that one always is number one or number two is that waiting for parts. Uh, it's, it's a big deal. 
Um, so moving on to our discussion today, uh, tell me about a little bit about uh, your background, where you went to school, the different companies you've worked for, and the roles that you've worked in in the past. So I, I went to Columbia University. In terms of my work experience, my earliest work experience was from the age of 10 years old to, for about 25 years after that, working on my dad's heating and air conditioning truck. And I, I would do that when I was in college. I would do that on my off days in high school. You know, if we have a, a day off, my dad would say, okay, we're installing a furnace today. I have another day off. All right, today we're installing a water heater. I, I, need, a, I need a body to help me move this stuff. And that really became who I was and everything else I did beyond that. So my only job outside of working for my dad has actually been for Merck. So when I came out of college, I worked for Merck very early in my career because of my love of maintenance. I got into maintenance for Merck working in a factory type setting. And because of doing the things that I was doing with my dad, you know, you're in a heating and air conditioning truck in Staten Island. New York, there's a bunch of traffic, so you have to schedule out your day. You can't have a job on the South Shore of Staten Island and the North Shore than the South Shore. So my, my dad had really ingrained in my head, you know, because it was his business. Every job we could complete effectively is money in the family's pocket. So why would I want to waste time traveling back and forth? Or let's go spec out this job early. Let's make sure we have the right size condensing unit because it's a waste of time for us to go back and forth and look for these supplies. So he ingrained this stuff in my head since I was a, a real little kid. It also gave me a tremendous appreciation for the mechanic, for the operator, because they're the ones really closest to the work. They're the ones driving the plant. And it also made me think twice about how I was designing equipment. My first job out of college was to design equipment. And my dad, as we were crawling upside down and backwards to try and replace a blow motor in a furnace, he'd say, right. who designed this? You can't maintain it. You, you can't even install it or maintain it. This is terrible. So when I came out of school, I got into that field. I then, uh, a few years after that, and you know, in terms of being a frontline supervisor in a factory, I started doing reliability engineering, or at least I thought was reliability engineering. It involved a little planning, a little scheduling, a little PM optimization, but we could never get our work done. Nothing on this. We made great schedules, but we could never get the schedule done past, say, the 50%. And why was it? Well, we had all these, these break-ins. And then I quickly learned, well, that's what reliability engineering really is, is to make sure this stuff doesn't break as often as it has. So you can actually do work and uh, do work to completion and have a better day at work every time. So I became a reliability engineer lead for a site and then expanded into multiple sites. Once that was uh, accomplished, I had moved into a global environmental sustainability role. And, and Doug, that's where you had really uh, mentored me. Uh, your book was awesome. We sat down and talked about how do we align reliability and energy so that they're not competing with each other, so that it's the same exact initiative. How do we show that equipment that is operating effectively is saving us energy every single day? So I had done that, and then after that, uh, that role was completed, that's when I moved into the current role that I'm in right now. That's pretty incredible, and I, I love the, the, the experience that you got with your dad. You know, uh, I didn't work for my dad. I worked on a farm, and, and it, just like you from a young age, and it was everything I did uh, right up into the time that I, that I went to college and even after college, because it's the type of thing, even though I uh, uh, had a job, it was a, you know, a local farmer. And when you need help and you're available, you go help them, right? Um, you, you learn that work ethic and it's a, it's a big deal. But your dad must be proud of uh, what, what you've become and, and, uh, and how you use the experience from working with him to, to help a, a large company like you have. That's great. Um, so the energy efficiency thing, by the way, uh, just, just so happens that, uh, I have a high school friend that his, his, uh, wife is now assistant to the, uh, 
Secretary of Energy. So interesting. Wow. She she uh, it, and she happens to be the person that when uh, Chris Colson and I were putting that book together, um, I was going to call it uh, Reliability is Green, and she came up with a clean, clean, green, and reliable uh, name, which I, I thought was much more more fitting. So anyway, <laughs> anyway moving on. Uh, when do you think you were first recognized as a leader? Uh, and what were you doing, and, and uh, how did that recognition come about? So this actually has nothing to do with work. It actually started when I was in high school football, where I think I was a junior or a senior, and I overheard my teammates. They didn't know I was around talking about how they wanted to follow the lead that I put with respect to the effort that I put into practice. And it's good to hear people complimenting you when you're not there, because it means that it's genuine. It's, it's not false, but it was a long road. When I was a freshman on that high school football team, I remember specifically I was named captain of that team, and the head coach is a, a, still my mentor to this day. He might be one of the greatest leaders I ever met, uh, Dino Mangiro. He said, okay, get these guys to sweep up the locker room, and I couldn't do it. So he handed me a broom, and he said, okay, you sweep the locker room. How can you lead, how can you lead people that aren't going to follow you? And that really stuck inside of my head. So maybe I'm 13, 14 years old when this happens, but it's really stuck in my head to this day is, yeah, you, you a leader is not somebody with a title. It's not someone with a sp certain position. It's are people following what you're saying? Are they inspired by what you're doing enough to do something that you want them to do, maybe even if they don't want to do it? And with respect to the, the maintenance world, I never really thought of myself as a leader until uh, Terrence O'Hanlon at an IMC conference. He asked me to be part of this town hall and sit on a stage and talk about leadership. And I was up there with legitimate legends in the maintenance and reliability world. And I was thinking, what am I doing up here with these people? I don't even have, half, <laughs> I, I don't know, a tenth of their experience or knowledge. But it, that I think that really helped kickstart my own belief in myself and then try to present more and share some of my opinions with other people. All right. So looking at, uh, and you've been in the, these various roles at Merck, um, what are your thoughts on, how to go about changing that reactive culture to become a proactive culture at a company or, or work site. How do you go, how does one go about doing that? Now, for me, uh, I, I'll tell you how I failed. I told people, this is how you do it, and you better do it this way, and that was a huge mistake. Really, <laughs> I'm, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna borrow a lot from another one of my mentors, Winston Leday. Uh, he, he was big into behavioral science. He was the, the I'd say that the big leader in defect elimination, and essentially it was getting people to basically change their habits, change their habits by making small changes every single day. So don't go in and say, uh, you know, by tomorrow we're going to have 100% uh, planned and scheduled maintenance and everything's going to be perfect. It's how do we change our habits on a daily basis? And by changing those little things, the one plus one, it doesn't equal two. One plus one can equal three. Or one plus one can equal ten. Because if you're not even creating a defect, well, then you've eliminated all of the processes that are involved with a, a, around solving an emergency, like we talked about before with parts. What's, what's the benefit of being great at getting a, an emergency part if there's no reason for it anyway? We're optimizing a process that doesn't exist. So for me, it's focus on the little things, focus on the basics, rep it out enough that it now becomes a habit. And now when people have a habit of being proactive, of of taking care of those little things, then the big things, they're not going to show up. I, I think somebody once said that, uh, you know, the little things are, 
are hard to find but very easy to fix. And the big things are easy to find but very hard to fix. Well, let's, let's look for those little things. Let's keep it simple. Let's gain momentum by getting these little wins every single day. And when you have that reactive culture, there's a ton of those things out there, isn't there? Right? Yeah, you, you, you can't get out of the way of them. Uh, people are getting hurt. People are screaming at you. You're losing money. Yeah. So when you have that reaction, reactive coaching, all you have is a bunch of big things, and you don't know which way to go. Yeah. I, I can remember, uh, and this is right after I got out of the apprenticeship, you know, doing some work and working with another journeyman. That, you know, he probably had 10 years more experience than me and uh, pulling, a, pulling a large relief valve. And the person before us just, you know, or never sees in the bolts and the steam connections to it were just miserable, right? And so when we go to put it back in, I've gone and I've got all new stuff and I've, I've, I've gotten some flux connections for the steam. And, and he, he's like, what are you doing all that for? And I said, you, you got to think about the next guy, right? This took us two hours. It should have taken us 20 minutes, right? It took us two hours to get the right. one thing out of there, right? So it, it is, it's just simple stuff like that every day. And when you lead that way, you know, sooner or later, people go, wow, there's somebody that's got their stuff together, right? And, uh, and so how long did it take for that stuff to, 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 to kind of kick in? Because I know it doesn't happen instantaneously. You know, it's not like one person watches you and goes, wow, they're, they're sure, she's fantastic. How long does it take to start shifting that? I, I think it takes... It takes, you know, depending on the size of the facility you work in, it could take a couple of years. I know in, in my world, it took us about five years. Now, people say, oh, my God, that's too long. Uh, I, we don't have time to do that. Yeah, you could put in something much more quickly, and it may work for a month. But, uh, you know, if, if you want to go slow and win, that, that, that's the way to go. And, and when I say slow, I don't mean not make any progress. I'm talking about make those little small foundational wins every single day, and then it's going to build up into a big thing. Now, one of... One of the best things, at least in my career, that, that I feel happy about when you quote-unquote call it success has to do with when the site that we were working at in Rahway won the best, I don't know what the, the right word to call it is, but from uh, the Uptime Awards with, with the International Maintenance Conference was the best defect elimination program. So that was in 2015. I think we started doing it in 2011, and we started small. We started in one small area of site with one work order, and we took out one defect, and then it grew and grew and grew. But what happened was we started changing the way people worked, the way they thought, the way they lived. And the reason I thought it was a success was because it made those mechanics and operators' lives better. They were happy. I was happy to go to work because they were no longer coming to me with problems. They were coming to me with, hey, come look at this defect that I eliminated. It was probably the greatest years of my life to go to work, kind of just go in and see what awesome things they've accomplished every day. I was no longer fixing everyone else's problems. I wasn't coming into 7,000 emails about bad things. It was, hey, come take a look at this awesome thing. And the thing that made it really cool that I had to mature to learn this was I had to appreciate that they thought they didn't need me anymore. In the beginning, you know, you want to be the hero. You want to solve everybody else's problem. But it took some maturing on my part to realize this is not what a leader is. A real leader is someone who can get people to do these things, not depend on you, and think they did it without you. Because then they've, de they've developed as a person, and they're not just relying on you for success. And that's really what sustainability is about, right? Is, is being able to leave and, and that those behaviors continuing. Um, that's, that's really what is powerful, right? And that's also I, when you, you know that, that you got through when that happens. 
Right, when all of a sudden... That's it just a great disappears. point, yeah. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're right. If you, if, if, if you think you're an awesome leader and you leave and then it falls apart, well, then yep. you weren't as good as you thought you were. Maybe that'll make you feel better. Oh, my God, they need me back. But you really <laughs> didn't do a right job, like you said, making it a sustainable process. It's not in their DNA. You didn't get it in their DNA to have this proactive culture. That's correct. That's exactly what I was going to say. Right. All right. So... Uh, Looking at, and you must have been in this position as well, hiring and promoting leaders, what are the traits that you look for and people that you're going to hire or promote? Yeah, so uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book Lynchpin, but they have this nice Venn diagram, and they got three things on the diagram. One of them is uh, charisma, so I'll call it charm. One's talent, one's perseverance. Now, anyone who's coming into our company they're talented, right? You wouldn't even have been in the interview process if you didn't have talent. So I'll just I'll X that one out. What I'm looking for is this combination of charm, perseverance, and talent. Because I, I think in a way you need all three. Now, if you have talent and perseverance, but you have no charm, you're probably just going to be frustrated. Why isn't anybody listening to me? Why isn't anybody doing all the great things that I'm saying? And those things are probably great, but you need to have some way to charm people to make them want to do that work. And if you have char charm but no talent, I'm sorry, if you have charm and talent but no perseverance, well, then you're just going to kind of give up really quickly. You know, you're going you're gonna to know some stuff, but you're not going to be able to struggle or to get through that struggle. So other things that I look for with people that you're hiring is what have you overcome? What, what's the worst times you've been through? How did you overcome that? I don't want to hear that your life has always been great. And also, how did you lead people when you had no title? You know, did you work in some sort of volunteer organization and people followed your lead? Uh, were you the lowest of the low on the totem pole at work and people decided to do what you said you were going to do? Or did people only follow you once you got that title? So for me, I'm looking for that leader who came, overcame hard things, who's got a way to motivate people, and can do it without a title. I like it. Excellent answer. All right, so um, nearly every leader that I've uh, talked with through the years, and, and the question that I ask them, right, if I'm just meeting somebody and we're having a conversation, I'll ask them, tell me about the book that you read that uh, you thought was fantastic in, in terms of helping you in your job and the things you do, or tell me about a course that you took that, that made a change that you ought to recommend to people to, because uh, I'm always interested in learning more, and so when I hear something new, I go, okay, then I write that book down. I'll go get that one, and I'll read that one. So you must have a few. Yeah, I am. Uh, I read all the time. I think you do too, right? We, we're, we're constantly reading, constantly trying to educate ourselves, try, constantly trying to better ourselves. I'll, I'll give you three. The first one you could probably guess was uh, Don't Just Fix It, Improve It. That was a book with respect to maintenance where I thought I was getting a book on tightening nuts and bolts. But it really was about behavioral science. And it, the yeah. book called, it called to me. It was like, this is your life. Go do what's in this book. And it was about <laughs> the people putting the people first. That, that's one. The second one, uh, a guy that I had coached football with, with handed me this book from John C. Maxwell called Leadership 101. You can probably read, read it in 15 minutes. But it was these little stories and little things about what real leadership was. Again, that's how I had to mature because I thought leadership was you tell people what to do and they do it. That's completely and totally not the truth. A book like that really gets into what makes a leader a leader, what makes a good leader a good leader, what makes a great leader uh, a great leader. And then the third book, this is a book I highly recommend. It's called Switch by the Heath Brothers. So we had gotten into a situation with sustainability where we couldn't move. 
We had what, what they would call riders. That's highly analytical people that have so much information in their head that they have uh, paralysis by analysis. And then you would have elephants, people that are highly emotional, and they could care less about the data, right? They, they, you give them data and they say, I don't care. If you say, uh, yeah, this, uh, this one thing, it represents 0.1% uh, of all of our defects and there's actually no issue with safety or uh, energy sustainability if you fix it. And they say, I don't care. That really bothers me. It's red. I want it to be blue. Paint the whole room <laughs> blue again. And then the writer says, oh, my God, I did this Pareto analysis, and these are the top five things that we need to fix. I don't know which one to fix. So what this book, Switch, does is it talks about how to handle a rider. Okay, the rider, you need to give them direction. How to handle an elephant. They don't care about data. You've got to tell them stories and keep them entertained. And how to shape this path so that it's easy for everybody. So if I'm on a diet, the easiest way to lose weight is to get rid of all the bad food in my house. I've shaped the path to make it virtually impossible for me to eat bad because there's no bad food in my house. If I want to improve sustainability in my cafeteria, well, then guess what? I'm going to get rid of all the plastic uh, and styrofoam in that cafeteria because now it's not there anymore. It's not an option. Now I have to use a legitimate, uh, say, porcelain plate. I have to use uh, maybe it's a paper straw, but I, I have to use silverware. I don't have another option. Now I've shaped the path. And if Amazing. you try to handle the wrong person the wrong way, you're not going to get anywhere. Yeah, and that's that's the key, isn't it, to leadership, is, is understanding that people really are different. We like to believe that they're all the same. They're not, right? They're different, and yeah. it, it requires us to learn how to, how to deal with those differences, right? And, um, Doug, one thing I learned in that conversation was you could be – first of all, when we first broke out this conversation about that book – we looked around the room and said, what are you? Uh, I'm a writer. What are you? I'm an elephant. All right, cool. Now we know what we are. But then we also realized in certain situations, you're a writer. In certain situations, you're an elephant. So yeah. like, you're right. You're, people aren't the same, and they may be different depending on what the circumstance is. <laughs> Good stuff. All right. So um, you'll often hear from people that uh, – some say leadership is a learned skill. Some say it's a natural skill. What's your take on that? This is a, an awesome, awesome question, one that I've thought about, I guess, since I started reading that Maxwell, uh, John C. Maxwell 101 book. And I, I'm, the best way for me to equate it to anything, it's kind of like speed. So speed, not everybody can run the 100 meters in the Olympics. It's probably timely because the Olympics is on right now. But you can get faster. So there are Olympic athletes. You're not going to make a non-Olympic athlete an Olympic athlete regardless of the coaching or training that they get. But you can make somebody as fast as they personally can be. So for me, leadership, natural-born leaders, they exist, but you can absolutely improve everybody's leadership skills. There's a lid to it. Maybe not everybody's going to be a perfect 10. Maybe some people, the highest they can be is a 6, but you can raise them from a 4 to a 6 by working on the techniques with them. Yeah. So I I use the one which is, is similar to what you're talking about is is the football thing, right? If you're a leader in football, it's it's a whole different set of skills than being a leader in a maintenance community, right? That football team, you got a bunch of guys that came together that wanted to do this. They have a common goal, and they had that before they walked out on the field, right? So you can scream and you can motivate, you can slap, give five and slap people on the butt, right? It's altogether different in the world of maintenance because not everybody has that same motivation. So it's, it's really one of those things that you have that natural leadership skill that you had from sports growing up, but then you have to add to that, right? And that's what the learn part comes from is 
is to say, boy, you better continue to learn about it because your skills to motivate are, are above average, right? Uh, for some of the group and below average for the other. And your job is to motivate them all. So how are you going to go about doing that? And Doug, you're, you're hitting on a point that I hadn't thought about in uh, over 20 years. But in my interview, one of the many interviews I had to get into Merck, the person who was interviewing me, he looked at my resume, saw that I had played college football. And he said, look, I'm sure you have some leadership ability, but that same type of leadership ability is not going to work in this world. I said, how do you know that? He said, because I also played college football. And the, the thing that you can't do, but that you try to do in sports, in sports there's a winner and a loser. This is not about winning and losing. We need to make sure that if, if you get your way at work, it's not because somebody else lost. You need to make right. sure everybody wins together. And I hadn't thought about that since you just said it, so that's a really awesome point. That's cool. The other one that's uh, – um, and these, I have close friends that have gone this track. They, they were military leaders first, right? Uh, one, in fact, it, uh, uh, is a uh, Annapolis graduate and then went on uh, to work in the manufacturing world and, and talk, talked about his struggles in, in the first years that he was hired because he goes, I was so used to giving an order and having it followed, and I thought that's what leadership was. And then I realized <laughs> in the real, real world, that doesn't work all the time, right? So uh, he goes, I, I really had to, to broaden my, my view and, and change. And, and he goes, luckily, I had a couple of good mentors that I talked to and said, hey, you know, that's not, I got to work for you here as much as you'd like for it. And, and it would be great sometimes if it did. But realistically, it's that challenge that people bring when you say something and they go, why should I do that? You, you need to be prepared to, to answer that. That shows you understand. It shows you know. It gives them <laughs> confidence that when you do ask them to do something the next time, you're probably right, right? And so you're more, right, likely, right. more likely to be listened to. All right. So at this point in your career, George, uh, what would you say is your greatest success? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go back to that, just getting the people at that site in Rahway to just have great days at work. It was like a, uh, we had gotten it to like a two or three year period, maybe a two year period after we started defect elimination that people just started to get it and they just started to eliminate defects on their own. When things first started, it was, we got a problem. Come look at this job with me. How come we don't have this part? How do you expect me to finish any of this stuff if we don't have materials? Oh, we do have the material. Now I'm putting the wrong material in it. Something just crazy like that. You know, just, just gripes. Some of them right, some of them wrong, but they, they were gripes. Within a few years, it was, hey, you got to come see this. Look what we did. Look at this awesome project we just did. And it got to a point where I couldn't keep up with the amount of defects that people were eliminating. I, I had no shot. Even if I went to go look at four or five jobs a day, I couldn't keep up where we actually had to start catching people doing the right thing because it was like, okay, this, we were like first worried, oh my God, we can't track all this stuff. And I said, who cares? Like this is, we don't need to track everything anymore. Now we have people just doing the right thing all the time and they're having a better day at work. And my hope was, a better day at work means a better day after work. Maybe they're a little nicer to their kids. Maybe they're sitting in traffic isn't as bad anymore because they felt like they got something something accomplished every single day. That's a fantastic point. I never uh, quite looked at it that way. You know, the one I always talked about was the shift from guys that they, they couldn't live without over time to all of a sudden when it changes, they, they go, man, I'm glad I don't have to work that overtime anymore. Right? Uh, <laughs> You know, I got time to spend with my family and and 
there certainly is that balance there. So, George, it's been fantastic talking to you today. I knew you would be a, a great guest on this because of uh, your background, your experience, and I've known you a number of years. So it was a pleasure to get to talk to you again. Um, I'm hoping to get to run into you at a, at a conference or two coming up when uh, those start going on again. So uh, it's it's been great catching up with you. And just I want to thank you again, Doug. You've been a tremendous, tremendous help with RCM, with uh, Lean Green and Reliable. I mean, that. that that stuff has been pivotal in, in my career and my learning and my, and my growing as an engineer. So thank you again for everything you did. You're welcome. I've always enjoyed working with you. I've always enjoyed chatting you when I bump into you at conferences and I'm looking forward to doing that again. So George, have a great day. This has been Doug Plucknett with the Leadership Connection and we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Leadership Connection. We will see you back for another episode next week. In between, we hope to see you in the Mobius Connect community where you can meet Doug and share with other industry professionals at MobiusConnect.com. We'll see you there.